as you are being seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, would you take them out? Would you turn them on? Uh, join me in the little book of Second Peter near the end of the New Testament as we are picking up in a sermon series that we left off uh, in, in a couple weeks ago through this book of Second Peter that uh, we've titled Grounded and Growing. Peter's message is a reminder uh, to the members of the church of his day, uh, a reminder both of the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are picking up here in chapter 3, after chapter, uh, we finished chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. I don't know about you, maybe you're still in um, your uh, period here at the beginning of the year where you're still faithfully pursuing your New Year's resolutions. Maybe yours are already dead. Uh, who knows? Uh, we're about a month and a half in. Um, this week, we uh, pre start preparing towards Easter. Maybe it's a good opportunity. Uh, I think Lent begins on Wednesday, um, and so uh, in preparation for Easter, maybe it's a good time. But maybe one of your commitments is some physical activity, something in order to keep yourself uh, fit this year. One of the things that I've noticed is I attempt to exercise is how easily uh, it just feels like a drudgery, Right? Uh, when I get, I don't know what it is, but when I get on an elliptical, when I get on a treadmill, when I get on something, it feels like time just comes to a stop, right? You just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. If I'm on there, five minutes feels like an eternity, let alone put the bumper or the, the timer on that thing and you're going to go for 20 minutes. I'm going to run or I'm going to walk or I'm going to do whatever it is for 20 minutes. That time just seems to just crawl. And yet, amen, there you go. And yet it never feel, fails that if I sit down to watch a movie or if I sit down to play a game or if I sit down to do something that's in entertainment, I look up and two hours has disappeared. And it's that reiteration of what we say all the time, right? Time flies when you're having fun. But when things get hard and things get difficult and we are put in a position where there is pressure put up against us, then time just seems to slow to the point of drudgery, it comes to a stop. And that's not only true with things like exercise versus pleasure. It's true of our lives. It's true of our relationships. It's true of our spiritual lives too. When life is going well, when we can easily look around and we can see that God is active in our life and we are experiencing or sensing his blessings, then that's the point in our lives when we're content and time is just sweet, and God is so good. But put us in a situation where we come under pressure, especially pressure where there seems to be no clear end, right? When I was uh, in, in college, my, my dad got into cycling, and so in a support with him and also just to, to be active ourselves, we started cycling as well. And there's something about knowing I'm going up this hill and it's getting hard and I would just set my eyes on a goal and if I can just get to the top of the hill, I know that there's relief on the other side. Until I got to the top of the, top of the hill and I realized it was a false summit and there's another hill. And when we're in those positions where pressure and we're under pressure and we're asked to persevere and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight, that's when things get hard. That's when time seems to crawl. When we're asked to persevere an illness and injustice and inconvenience, an inconvenience, and there's no end in sight. When we pray and pray and pray and pray, and there seems to be no movement, there seems to be no change, there seems to be no answer. 
instead of time being sweet and God being good, those are times when time is bitter and God is absent. Time matters because, brothers and sisters, we are finite beings, right? I'm one year older as of yesterday. Many of you recognize how time changes us. It changes our society. We are finite beings, and we only have a limited amount of time on this earth to accomplish what it is that God places in our hearts and in our lives for us to do. There's only a certain amount of time that we have as parents. There's only a certain amount of time that I have as pastors. There's only a certain amount of time that I have on this earth to leave an imprint for the, and an investment in the kingdom of God. And as finite beings, time is is essential and time is important. And when God doesn't work on our schedule, it is so easy for us to wrestle with him, especially for control. And it becomes easy for us to then question whether or not he cares and question his character. Which is why Peter's message should bring us some measure of hope, brothers and sisters. Because what we find in Peter's message is the same struggle that you and I have today, these Christians had nearly 2,000 years ago. So congratulations. If you are wrestling with the finiteness of time and wrestling with whether or not God is care, cares or is concerned about your life and active, guess what? You're normal. Because Christians have been wrestling this, with this question since the days that Peter wrote, and we need that message as much as they needed that message. Because it's a struggle that Christians have been experiencing since the foundation of the church. And Peter's message then and his message today brings us great reassurance. And his message is that God's patience proves his love for sinners, not his apathy towards sin. God is patient. And his patience is a proof that he loves us, not that he is indifferent to us. Look with me, if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll read the first 10 verses together. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But, we, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we are grateful for your love. And it manifests itself in so many ways, but chief among them is the fact that you have left us a record of the struggles of brothers and sisters. Even, Heavenly Father, as we read through the Old Testament and we see the heroes of our faith, we find that Scripture is not afraid 
to expose the weaknesses and the faults and the failures of men and women just like us, who nevertheless, because of your grace, are people that we can emulate in their pursuit of you and in their faith in you. Lord, thank you for the record of righteousness that is not ours, but is given to us because of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege that it is to stand and proclaim your word this morning. Lord, I pray for each of our hearts that, Holy Spirit, you would so protect and guard and keep this place, and each and every one of us, that you would speak the truth to us. Lord, I pray that you would expose our sin, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds and our ears and our eyes, not only to your love, to your existence, to your faithfulness, to your presence and your passion and your patience, but ultimately, Heavenly Father, to the promise that we have in Jesus Christ, that there is an end that is coming. When one day, when all things that are wrong are made right, when all that is evil will be consumed by your perfect righteous judgment, when we will be restored to your presence, redeemed completely, and saved from the very presence of sin. Guard us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the opening verses that we just read, Peter is again reiterating the purpose of this letter. Peter is writing to Christians of his day to remind them of what they already know to be true. He is continuing to hold in front of them the significance of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then also the expectation that God has that we not only be grounded in the gospel, but that we be growing in gospel character as well. Because we need both the truth of the gospel in our hearts and in our minds held firmly, but we also need the beauty of the gospel that is displayed in lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ, transformed and pursuing him in our life of obedience. And Peter's purpose here is to stir up the affections and the intentions of the people by reminding them of the truth of the gospel, by reminding them of truths that have been ancient even into the Old Testament. Because the tendency of every single one of us is to forget, to go back to the way that we've always done it, to go back, like he said last week, of these false teachers, like a, a dog to its vomit and a pig to the mud pen. We are always prone to forget God's love and God's faithfulness and instead go back to trying to control our lives again and do it on our own terms in our own time. And so that's why we need reminders. And that's my entire purpose every single Sunday. It's not to teach you something new. It's to remind you of the ancient truths that have been preached for the last 2,000 years and even beyond to remind you week after week of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, to point you to Jesus Christ, to cultivate in you a heart that is quick and willing to see the ways that we are prone to fail and then find in Jesus Christ the perfect love that restores us time and time and time again. Because when I see my sin and I look to my Savior, I always respond in worship. So my goal every single Sunday, like Peter's, is to remind you of the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to then provoke from you and stir up in you worship in your hearts as you respond to Jesus Christ. And so Peter is reminding them 
And in verse 2, he provides an outline of what I think is the best outline for this entire chapter. He says, I'm going to remind you of two things. The predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I want to remind you what the prophets of old, the Old Testament said. And I want to remind you of the command that was given to you in Jesus Christ. And so that breaks up this chapter into two realities. And so we're looking this morning at that reminder, or the the reminder of the prediction of the prophets of the old days. And the prediction of the prophet is being derided. It is being mocked by scoffers. So he moves right into this reality that there are people who have been raised up and they are mocking what they perceive as God's inactivity. God's inactivity in the world. Peter thinks it is important to remind the people, his audience, and you and me today, what the ancient prophets wrote because there were false teachers in the church. Two weeks ago, we looked at all of chapter 2 in one big fell swoop. We didn't go as deep as we could have, especially if we had spread it out. But Peter there pointed out the fact that there were and there will always be false teachers in the church. And therefore, we must be on our guards. We must be grounded in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can't be tossed to and fro by the winds of false teachings and doctrines as the culture changes around us. And Peter exposed these false teachers and he said, here's how you can know that despite the fact that by their own words, they are ones who have trusted in Jesus Christ and they might really genuinely believe that they are saved. If you listen to what they say and you look at how they live, you will find that it is in total disconnect with their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul now specifically identifies one of the messages that these false teachers are bringing based based in their false understanding of God and his character. They are mocking God's quote-unquote inactivity. They say, where is the promise of his coming? Because since the beginning of time or since the fathers fell asleep, time just continues to go on and on and on. As they look around the world, they ask the age-old question that even the psalmist asked. There are several psalms that are written with this perspective that say, when I look around the world, I see evil people getting away with evil. God, where are you? And so these scoffers rise up and they say, listen, if God really cared, he would do something about these evil people and the culture that is changing. Especially if you'll remember, this is the second letter that Peter has written. It's near the end of his life. If you read the first letter that we have of Peter, Peter's major emphasis is preparing the Christians for the persecution that is coming. These Christians are living in an extremely hostile time in which the world and the the government around them truly genuinely hates them and wants them to be killed. And so Peter... And the church, they're looking out at the world and they're looking and realizing this world is increasingly hostile to us. We're watching our brothers and sisters suffer. We are seeing injustice and God seems to be doing nothing about it. And so the conclusion that these false teachers seem to have come to is on the one hand, since God is inactive, God is indifferent, therefore we can do whatever we want. 
If God really cared about the sin of the world, God would show up and do something about it. Since God isn't showing up and punishing them out there, how much more of a license do we, who've received the grace of Jesus Christ, have to do whatever we want? If God won't punish the wicked outside the church, how much more should we inside the church, who've received the grace of God, be free to live however we want? And so if you go back to chapter 2, you'll find that they were living lives full of sexual sin and injustice against one another and many different things, and convincing others to do so. That because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, we are now free to do whatever we want. They question God's activity, and they conclude that because of that, he's indifferent to sin. And they conclude that there's no consequence for their sin, and they can indulge themselves. And so they issue this challenge to the church. And the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, what we need to take away from this is the fact that Peter has said for the second time that there will be false teachers in the church. Therefore, we must be prepared. Not merely to win a theological argument. We need to be prepared as those who are anchored in the truth of Scripture but also be prepared for those who are willing to move towards the difficult questions. There are so many Christians that I see in the world today that when somebody asks a question that they don't have a good answer to, they just run straight back to this very simplistic, well, the Bible says that I believe it done. And they never actually take the time to allow themselves to think through the challenging questions to allow themselves and their faith to be pushed against in some way. They never move towards those difficult questions. Instead, we just throw up our hands and go, you know what, I really shouldn't go and tell my neighbors about Jesus because you know what, they might ask me a question that I don't have the answer to. And instead of finding out the answer or having the courage to have the conversation and when the question gets asked, go, you know what, I don't know, but I'll go find the answer. We just throw up our hands and we walk away. And we live lives of inactivity ourselves because it's uncomfortable to move towards the questions that would cause us to doubt or would, question to cause, or would cause us to question our own, the reality of the faith. But the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, just like that workout, when I bump up the resistance on that elliptical, what that resistance ultimately does is it forces my legs to then work harder and those muscles to then get bigger and those muscles to grow and grow stronger. And if we are willing to not run from the difficult questions, but recognize the reality that there will be difficult questions in every generation and in every culture, and if we have the courage to know that it's there and step towards it, what we will find every single time is that when we move into the difficult questions and into the resistance, our faith will grow stronger when we find the answers. So we don't need to run away from the false teachers and the questions that exist out there. Nor do we need to live lives that are constantly, I call them sheepdogs, not shepherds. The guys that are constantly ready to rip pastors to shreds because of one misstep in a sermon or in a prayer or anything else. Try to win an argument and tear one another down. But we do not need to be afraid of the difficult questions in the presence of false teachers. We can know that the truth is found here. And there is nothing new that is under the sun. And so when we take the time to think through it, we will find our, strength faith, uh, we will find our faith strengthened in the end. So Peter acknowledges the reality that God's inactivity is mocked. 
And so then he responds to that with, by exposing the action of God to these false teachers. He asserts that these false teachers are blatantly doing this. They have hardened their hearts to the promises and the truths of scriptures that are plain in front of them. He says this in verse 5. They deliberately overlook something. They are willfully blinding themselves to the truth. He says, basically, listen, if they would open their eyes and they would read the scriptures and they would listen, they would see this. But instead, they are ones whose hearts are hardened and they actually are pursuing their own sinful desires. And so they're going to ignore anything that disagrees with them and instead pay attention to only the things that affirm their position. And so they deliberately overlook the things that might challenge them, specifically the activity of God in the world through history. They say, look, God's not showing up. We can't see any activity of God since the creation of the world. Well, the very fact that they confess the world was created to begin with is proof that God did something in time. It's proof of God's activity that started it all in the first place. Right? We can't see God's activity since he started the whole thing. We acknowledge that he started the whole thing. Therefore, God did something in time and did something in history. But it's way back there. So you can just ignore that. Peter says, listen, God created the world through the spoken word and through the water. Going back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there we find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit together. And the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And out of the chaos, God brought order, the order of creation. But God didn't just stop there. Building off of that theme of God's word and the creation of things through the water, he then immediately jumps over to Genesis chapter 6 that says, if you need additional proof that God cares about what goes on in the world, just look at the flood. This world that God created and called very good, just a few generations later, he looks at the world in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 and says, sees that wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, heart was evil all the time. And God was not indifferent to that evil, but then instead chose to act through the word and through the water to, to flood the earth as an act of his judgment and his punishment and a declaration of his concern about the existence of sin. So activity number one, God created the world. Activity number two, God judged the world in the past. But I think something that's very important that is implied to this is not just what God did in Genesis. It's what God did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well. Because Peter wants us to know that God is a God who has remained active in the world. Because we have the predictions of the prophets, which he said the prophets in the end of chapter 1 are those who spoke as God instructed them to speak. Remember? And so God has remained active throughout human history as he has inspired Scripture again and again throughout every generation. And ultimately, ultimately what we find is God's greatest activity is in his son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to remember not only the predictions of the prophets, but the command of Christ. The very fact that these false teachers are saying we can do whatever we want because of the grace that we have in Jesus, they are by themselves in that moment saying God did something God showed up in sending his son so the very argument that they are making that I can do whatever I want because of Jesus is in and of itself proof that God is active in the world and cares about our existence because he sent his son 
to live a perfect and spotless and righteous life. To never once disobey, but to fully trust himself in the hands of the Lord. To be patient to allow God's plan to come to fruition. Even to the point of sacrificing himself and dying on the cross. And bearing upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin. And then in that he trusted himself to God's justice and God's, God's care as he hung on the cross and cried out, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Myself beyond just this physical existence on this cross. But what is going to happen after this point? And he entrusted God with his future. As the book of Hebrews tells us that he set his eyes, fixed his eyes on the joy that was before him and therefore he endured the cross. As Jesus looked beyond the cross, beyond the grave, to his resurrected state and glorified state, ascended at the right hand of the Father. And trusted God's plan at every single stage bearing our punishment that we might receive his righteousness. The cross is the greatest act of God's concern for sin. Not merely that it be punished, but that you and I might be saved. That we might experience God's love. And to all those who trust in Christ, we receive his righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins, and the promise of an eternity in his presence. And that eternity is what Peter then looks forward to. He says God is active in the past, and God is going to be active in the future as well. As he looks to the prediction of the prophets. So what is this prediction of the prophets? It's the day of the Lord. Right? As he looks to the future, they overlook that God did all of this, but that also by the same word and the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And when you get down to verse 10, you find that phrase, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter looks forward to the promise given by the Old Testament promise or prophets, confirmed by Jesus Christ, proclaimed by the apostles that just as Jesus came and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is coming again. And when he comes again, it will be sudden. It will be swift. It will be like a thief in the night. There will be no ability to anticipate it. It will come upon us in an instant. And with it, there will come a holiness of God that is so going to saturate this earth that everything that is wrong, everything that is evil, will be consumed in the fire of his holiness. And that's why it says here that when God comes and the day of the Lord comes, the earth will be exposed and the works on the earth will be exposed because there will be no more shadow in which sin can live and dwell and thrive and grow. But when Christ comes again, he will expose everything and he will purify and purge the world, not by water, but by fire. And all things that are wrong will be made right. And these false teachers have deliberately blinded themselves to that truth. Deliberately overlooked it. So what then can we do to protect ourselves from this? Do the exact opposite. Deliberately look at your life and ask the question, God, where are you? God, where have you been? Peter looks at physical, historical examples of God's activity in the world. 
And there is a need for every single one of us to be constantly reminded day in and day out when times get tough and we are asked to persevere and be patient despite the fact that we cannot see the end. The only thing that is going to carry us through is when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt God has been faithful, therefore God will be faithful. And the only way, brothers and sisters, that we are prepared for that moment is if we take the time and sit down and create for, for ourselves a record of God's activity in our lives and beyond. Sit down this week with a piece of paper and a pad in, your, in front of you and a pencil and say, okay, God, where have you shown up in my life? And make a record of it. Sit down with God's word and say, where have you shown up in this world? Where have you shown up in the lives of the people around me? And then God, like Henry Blackaby says, asks the question, God, where are you at work that I might join you there? So much of our prayer life is spent trying to call God to our aid. Hey, God, I'm over here. Hey, remember, God, it's me. Remember, God, I've got this going on. God, I need you to come and do this. God, I need you. God, would you come to me? God, would you come? When was the last time you stopped and prayed? You know what, God, you're God and I'm not. Where are you? And though I'm grateful that God is always willing, like the Father, to run to us when we come to him in repentance and confession, Jesus also invites us into the fields that are white for harvest, not on the sidelines. And maybe the time is we stop praying, God, would you come to me? And instead, God, would you invite me to you? And be busy where God is already at work. And I promise you, brothers and sisters, if you will move towards God, you will find that the work is so much easier than doing it on your own. So we see God's inactivity is mocked by the false teachers. We see that Peter exposes the activity of God both in the past and in the future. So the question then is, if God's worked in the past and he promises to work again in the future, what about all the problems in the present? And that's when Peter explains God's patience. See, the, God, the answer to where is God now is that God is here, and God is present, and God is patient. They overlook the fact that God is at work. And so he challenges his listeners, the Christians of his day, and you and me, don't overlook this, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We learn something about the nature of God that God does not experience time in the way that you and I experience time. You want to know why? He created it in the first place. Time is something that God created. Time is something that God is outside of. Time is something that God is not bound to. The only time that God is, or the only moment that God is bound to time is when he chooses, like an author, to inject himself into the story, which is what he does in Jesus Christ. But God has the ability to interject himself into our time. At that point, that is when God experiences moment by moment. But God has the ability to see all of time at once. Should he so choose? Maybe you're an avid reader like I am. And the only way that I can help myself make sense of this is the fact that I have a wall of books at my house of stories that I love to read and that I have collected. Here's the reality. When I open that book and I get inside the pages of that book, I enter into the storyline, correct? And I experience what takes place in that story moment by moment as I read through the book or as I watch through the movie, correct? 
But at the same time, I have the ability to step back, close the book, and in one single thought, think simultaneously of what happens at the beginning of the book and what happens at the end of the book. Right? Following me? You tracking with me? And nod ahead. That's how God experiences time. He can step into it, and he can see it moment by moment. Or he can back up, and he can know the end from the beginning all at once. So what Peter is saying here, despite what some people oftentimes teach, and there is a teaching that says a day is as a thousand years, and therefore a thousand years is a day. And so there's a teaching that says because of this passage of Scripture, God is working in a seven-day period, And so a day for God is a thousand years, so we can anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ in the millennial reign of Jesus, that final day of rest, a thousand days, as the earth is only going to exist for 7,000 years. And so we go back to the period of time, and they're going to try to misinterpret this verse. That's not what it's saying. What Peter is simply saying is God doesn't experience time the way that you and I do. He's indifferent to time. And so because he's indifferent to time, God's understanding of time and God's patience is infinite compared to yours and mine who are bound to time. There will never be a moment that we will not be someone who's bound to time because we have a definitive beginning. Now, the promise in Jesus Christ and the promise of the Bible is that we'll have no end. So our timeline just keeps on going, but we will always experience time. We will never be like God outside of it. God, because of that, and because that is true, God, therefore, is patient. He is patient, and his patience is there because what Paul tells us, his kindness is what leads us to repentance. Not the big stick. It's God's patience that draws us to him. It's God's kindness that draws us to him. That's who God is. problem is we are so easily put off by God's patience because we don't like to suffer and we don't like to see suffering. We long for justice and wrongs to be made right and we then easily demand that God work on our timeline. And when we don't see the people who have hurt us punished by God in our time frame, when we don't see the world coming to 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 a blessed experience for us, when we see our culture drifting away from God, when we see hostilities rising against the church and we don't see an end in sight, we have the ability then to grow impatient and allow ourselves to become unfaithful and question the very heart and character of God. Unlike the false teachers who say that because God is indifferent, God doesn't care how we live, we go to the opposite side and say, God, because of your indifference, you must not be the loving, patient, kind God that you say you are. Because if you were, you would show up and you would do something about this. You would punish those people. You would stop this suffering. You would end these earthquakes. You would make it right now. You would fix things. But all we have to do is look to Jesus and find out that that's not true. Because as we said earlier, when we look to Jesus, what do we find? We find one who suffered. We find one who endured the suffering. We find one who trusted his life with his father. As he said repeatedly to his disciples, I can only do what I've seen the father doing. I can only do what the father commands me to do. 
And he trusted his father with every single moment of his life. We also saw that he trusted his spirit as he hung on that cross. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted his life. He trusted his future to the hands of the father because he knows the character of his father despite the suffering that has come, that has come against him. And here's the kicker. As he hung on that cross, what else did he trust God with? The very people who are crucifying him. The very people who were committing the injustice against him. As he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's so easy for us to look at everybody else that is committing injustice and evil around the world and and see them for what they are. But then think of ourselves as not that bad. But brothers and sisters, here's the promise of the gospel. If God loves them who are that bad and is patient with them who are that bad, even in our sinful comparison of ourselves to others, how much more than patient is God with us? God's patience is proof that he loves the worst of us. Not that he's indifferent to sin because he's clearly acted upon that, but because he is patient when you and I will remember that God is active and concerned with ourselves and with our world and that he is actively involved in seeing that justice be done in the past, in the present, and in the future, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's character is pure and that it is true and that God is a God of compassion. And when we prayerfully then cultivate hearts that trust in God and that allow him to awaken compassion in ourselves, even for those who have sinned against us, what we will find is that God's patience towards the worst of sinners in the world only gives us greater confidence in his patience for us and draws us deeper into trusting in him and deeper into relationship with him and deeper into dependence upon him. And that in and of itself becomes the motivation for us to be patient as well. Because God promises that an end is coming. We may not be able to see it. And according to Jesus, it's none of our business when it's coming. But God is patient to the end. And when we understand his love, his compassion, his activity, his concern, his character, when we draw near to him and find him draw near to us. Brothers and sisters, we can be patient to the end. And life can be sweet even in the darkest of days. So let me encourage you. Take heart. Take hope. God is good. God is patient. And God invites you and me to trust in him today. Would you trust in him today?